0: This episode of Fearless Rebel Radio is brought to you by You on Fire. You on Fire is the amazing 12-week online group coaching program that I run where we build up your worth from the ground up so that it's no longer hinging on the way that you look. It's got personalized coaching from me and incredible community support plus lifetime access. Get details on what's included in this program and sign up to be notified when doors open for the next cycle by going to SummerInanin.com forward slash you on fire. I would love to have you in that program and in that group. This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth and confidence and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 157 and I am interviewing Holly Whitaker, author of Quit Like a Woman and founder and CEO of Sobriety School Tempest, about how alcohol culture strips us of our power, the patriarchal nature of AA and her approach to becoming a non-drinker geared towards women and other marginalized groups. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinonin.com forward slash 157. First, let me give a shout out to Nick at Lou. Nick at Lou. That might be the code word. Anyways, it's a five-star review that says, love, love, love. Why haven't I listened to this show sooner? I discovered Summer while listening to Christy Harrison's podcast and I had to subscribe. I love her messages regarding food and body positivity. I have struggled so long with pseudo dieting and have had more off days than on days. But listening to her podcast always lifts my spirits and keeps me moving in a positive direction. Love her message. I would definitely recommend this to anyone having body food insecurities. Thank you so much. What a lovely, lovely review. And you can leave a review like that too. If you go to iTunes, click ratings and reviews and click to leave a review or give it a rating. I always appreciate the reviews. I do read them as you can see, and it helps others to find the show more importantly so does subscribing. So that takes two seconds, just hit the subscribe button on whatever you use to listen to podcasts. And lastly, if you haven't already done so get the free 10 day body confidence makeover at summer forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. And remember, you can always just go to the body image coach.com to get all the resources that I mentioned, because that'll redirect you to my website website. Today's guest is Holly Whitaker. Holly Whitaker is the founder and CEO of Tempest, formerly Hip Sobriety. With years of experience in the fields of healthcare and tech, she created an individualized recovery program in 2014 through a virtual platform that offers education, community, and support services. She lives in Brooklyn with her cat, Mary Catherine. This conversation is really fascinating and Holly's book, Quit Like a Woman, really opened my eyes. Uh, I've always been someone who can just, you know, casually drink and it's has not impacted my life in a negative way. And to really read about how it starts to strip us of our power and look at it from a feminist perspective and look at the recovery world from a feminist perspective was just like, really mind blowing to me. So I, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And if you're curious to learn more, the book is awesome. It's, it's really well written. And I appreciated how she included fat phobia when she was talking about various social oppressions. I think that sometimes that piece is missed from those conversations. So I especially was digging it when that was included. All right, well, let's hop into the interview and get started with the show. Hi, Holly. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Summer. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. I have had a couple of clients tell me that I needed to have you on the show. Uh, I had a couple of clients that did, have done your program, I think when it was called Hip Sobriety, and they were like, "You have to, you have to talk to this woman. She's really aligned to the kind of messaging that you are putting out there. So I'm really honored to have you on the show. And I just have to say your book, is amazing. Like It really blew my mind in so many ways. I never really thought about alcohol in that way before. And it just was like... In what way? Well, just as something that is really co-opting feminist ideals and something that is really keeping us more powerless. And yeah. yeah, like, it just, you know, because I'm always like, my focus is on diet culture. And I see, yeah, how right. dieting strips us of our, our power. And yet that is so normalized. And so to then see alcohol as like this other huge component that strips us of our power that's embedded in our culture and normalized. Anyways, we'll get into all that. But I was just like, holy shit, I never really thought about it that way. And this is like, yeah, this is such important information to put out there. So I know I'm jumping the gun a bit, but, uh, so I so no, love- I'm like,
1: I'm now by, I'm like chomping at the bit. I'm like, can we just go from there? Because- <laughs> oh, sure.
0: Yeah, sure, sure, sure. At some point I would love you to just introduce like how you got into the work a bit, sure, just to, to sure. weave that in because I know that always connects people a little more just with, with yeah. your story. Yeah. So
1: let's put a pin in real quick then. Cause the, I think it is so interesting, like the awareness around diet. I have never actually until this moment. I mean, I obviously know diet culture is like just one of the ways that we're oppressed and kept from our power and chasing these ideals that suffocate us and make us kill ourselves and all of this shit and I also think like, I've never really thought about why can't we leap from like that culture to drinking culture. I never even thought of that until just right now. I I mean, in that light of how you were talking. So I want to go back to that. But I'll really quickly say I'm Holly. Um, My name is Holly Whitaker. I wrote a book called quit like a woman. And I got into doing this because I got sober about seven years ago, I had bulimia, I um, had 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 eating disorders. I mean, I had been dieting since I was, God, I mean, one of my neighbors, um, her mom had her on Weight Watchers when she was probably like eight or nine. And I just like, I think I had had an eating disorder. I I took diet pills in the fifth grade. I, I think I'd had an eating disorder so much earlier than I actually talk about in the book, but I definitely had bulimia from age 18. I just had never had developed a quote unquote, healthy relationship with alcohol and drugs and i um it kind of came crashing down around me in my early thirties, and i the what was presented to me as a treatment option felt absolutely like uh the last like the opposite of treatment. And I, through that experience of also working in the healthcare system and also understanding what gets covered and what doesn't and having just such awareness around something that was murdering me was not recognized by the healthcare industry and also that I knew more than my doctors did. There was just, I started to piece together a way forward for myself. And I immediately knew too, I I wanted to, I mean, I started teaching our doctors how to talk to patients who are struggling with addiction, um, you know, while I was just barely sober. And I just had a very early calling to turn my experience into something that was different and was allowed people to seek treatment faster and also question their relationship with alcohol, substances and other addictions. And also that was you know, based in kind of a bottoms up approach of allowing the person to guide the course Versus the system to guide the course, and so yada yada yada. I have a program that helps people quit drinking. I've been sober for seven years. I don't know. Is that like I? Yeah. I hope that. Okay. Good. Yeah.
0: Nope. That's 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 perfect. That's perfect. I you. I mean that if people want more, it's in the book. It's you know. It's obviously like there's chunks of memoir writing in there, and and so you can get more details there. But that's perfect. Yeah. It's a good segue. So do you want to come back to the conversation, like the about you know. Diet culture being the other piece. Uh, what, where was your brain going with it? I'm curious to know.
1: I just, I think it's one of those things where I have a lot of very progressive friends and activist friends, and I, and not all my friends are sober. And I think I, I have always be. I have always felt like this is the last, like awareness around alcohol is the last stop on the bus for whatever reason of like just being able to understand how it oppresses us and how I mean, just substance abuse oppresses us and how it's sold to us. And it's just like it's like I mean, a really good example of this is like Bitch Magazine. Like they invited me to come to a cocktail party because I was a member. I was like a you know, not just a subscriber, but like a contribute, like I sent them donations and like they asked me to come to something and I said, Hey, you know, you might have some sober people, like it was about drinking and the resistance. And I was like, Hey, you know, you might have some sober people in your ranks. I'm one of them. Um, you know, could I help you talk about this differently or perhaps, you know, could you not serve? A drug at uh, you know, like something that is like meant to keep us out of our power. Like what I see as you know, I feel like I can. I wouldn't normally say all this on any podcast, but I'll say this here. I feel like it's a tool of to patriarchy. And like, can we not have that at our event, or can we have some conversation around it? And they were like, no, <laughs> you know. And so it was just like, and and once my friend Andos at Johnston, um, she wrote about in her book. She approached Gloria Steinem years ago and asked Gloria Steinem but she thought about alcohol as being a woman's issue, especially since the rate of addiction is going up. And, and Gloria Steinem said, alcohol is not a women's issue. And then Gloria Steinem literally like a year or so later posted on her own Instagram account, she advertised a beer for menopause and it was called liberation and it was for menopausal women. And so I think like there. I've just always wondered because we do around diet culture, and I think we do have a larger awareness. And you might have different thoughts about this, but I think we can very easily see the way. Because uh, I, I don't think I know anybody. You know, I, I don't think I know anybody in a, in any of my close people. I really don't know any any women um, that are not aware of how that affects them. And I just feel like it's just one of these things that I have a hard time putting a finger on and an easy time dismissing and an easy time of saying, I'm going to deal with this oppressive feeling I have by having a, you know, a glass of wine. And it's just anyway, my thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's,
0: it's, it's true. I think it's one that really uh, a lot of people have their blinders on too. And, and I'd love you to just talk more about like how, how you started to see it being embedded into female culture or as like, as you say, ingrained in the female code, like, you know, did that come over time where you started to just really see this or was it like, did you sort of have like a wake up call moment where you were like, wow, this is really like, you know, keeping us oppressed and, and, and what are the ways that it's ingrained in, in female culture?
1: Well, I mean, there's so many, it's even hard to name, but I think just from my own, from my own memory of how this, because, you know, it's really hard to remember how you were before, before you knew something, um, or what it was like to not know something. But for me, I, I definitely didn't, you know, run out of the gates being like, wow, you know, they're really going after women. I think it was just, um, Gabrielle Glazer, slightly controversial figure, wrote a book called Her Best Kept Secret. I had a very large hunch that I was a very specific brand of person. Like I was going through something that many were, that I had followed the path. And so to talk about my book, like I felt very certain that there were many people out there like me who had done all the right things had chased the gold, you know, and we're like, we're, we're buying into all this shit, you know, like the master cleanse and like the yoga classes and the career trajectory and the fancy expensive like just, I felt that there were a lot of people that had been led down the path I had been led down and then hated themselves and were di- like dying. I felt like I was part of a walking dead when I got sober. I felt like there cannot be This cannot just be me that has landed here with this specific formula. I did everything you told me to do. Why do I hate myself? And I think that brought a little bit of awareness and then Gabrielle Glazer wrote a book called Her Best Kept Secret and it was just talking about the prevalence of drinking among, she was mostly talking about like suburban moms, like there was like a a ritual of of recycling that happened where, and I did this, I would take my recycling to different bins, you know, like there's this ritual of, of covering it up and that's not just to women, that's like anybody that has a drinking problem, we get really sneaky about how we had her bottles. And so I think like that extended my awareness and she was writing about the prevalence of it with women, and I was at Johnston did a lot. And I think that, I think that and just influencer culture and seeing how that worked. And I think it's also just when you stop doing something, you start to see all the ways it shows up. And so it was a growing thing and then uh, it was something that we we started my, I had a podcast years ago and my co-host and I started talking about this in like 2000 I think I started posting about this in 2014 and 2015 we talked about it on our podcast but I think seeing the, like it with the clarity I see it now came about from you know I would say like my like becoming a feminist right and like actually understanding how it works and reading and researching and just tying the threads together of what was happening in America against, you know, what was becoming clear to me in my research about addiction. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but
0: yeah, I think, I I mean, I, I think it's like, um, it, it's one of those things that you start to, once your, once your eyes are open, they just get wider and wider and you see how it's everywhere. I know for me in particular with the alcohol, like it, you know, I became a mom just over a year ago and, and to see how that is just like the go-to coping mechanism. And it's like, Oh, like, Oh, just, you just need a glass of wine. And it, just so much of that shit. And, uh, the, one of the women that I follow on Instagram and she's been on the show, her name's Graham Seabrook. Like she made this meme that said mommy needs instead of, and wine was crossed out. And she put like, freedom from like a patriarchal capitalist structure that basically you know and, and I am paraphrasing there but I, I remember was like that mean oh yeah yeah so anyway she's she's fantastic but anyways I was like holy shit this is so true
1: <laughs> you know it's um true and it's like yeah. they feed you the drug I mean it's not any different than like Milltown or Valium. it's just like we've constantly been keeping like women drugged to like not fight the system I mean it's just a thing and it's like I don't, I think it's just also so glamorized now and it's so public and it's so blended in. And you asked me all the ways that it's entrenched. Well, I mean, I think it's a lot easier for us to figure out the things that we do that doesn't involve alcohol than the things that we, that, or I'm sorry, that does involve alcohol and things we do that, that don't. And like my sister, for instance, she became a mom and she was at, you know, she had no, I, my niece is the age of my sobriety. And so when my niece started entering public school and my sister started mixing with, you know, mommy crowd, um, she was like, holy shit. Like, what is this? Like, why are they all obsessed with drinking? And like, why is everything around drinking? And I think we just like it's it's you know, it's, it shows up in motherhood. It shows up as like the thing we deserve as a way to like, you know, take the edge off as a way to make it through the day as a way to make it through. Second shift is the way to, you know, do I mean everything. And it's the way we're supposed to connect the way we're supposed to have sex. It's the way we're supposed to celebrate. It's the way we're supposed to grieve. It's the way we're supposed to host a book club. It's the way we're supposed to now go to yoga classes or whatever the hell. I mean, it's just, you know, like a perfect example is this. My book was sent out and our booksellers included $100 or $10 wine you know, vouchers. I'm not kidding. Like, yeah. it's just so ingrained. They literally put wine vouchers in a sobriety book. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. And so, so I want to I wanna talk about, because you talk about alcohol as the new tobacco. And I think the majority of people would think that's a bit of a stretch based on the fact that, like, we've all been conditioned to think that alcohol can just be enjoyed and that it can even be healthful. So, you know, why do you call it the new tobacco? Like, how do you see that? Be, how do you see it being so harmful?
1: I mean, it is, it's like, if you look at what the combined total deaths from illicit and by illicit, that just means anything that's been made illegal, illicit drug use worldwide is about 500,000 and worldwide it's about 3.3 3 million for alcohol. I mean, I think I was reading an article last night that talked about alcohol related deaths have doubled in the last two decades. Wow! Um, it kills I mean, it kills close to, you know, I think it's like close to one in 10 adults um, in America. Um, It's just like that when you start to actually look at the stats, you're looking at something that is a murderer and a killer. And it's just so interesting when you put that up against Juul, you know, like a few people and I'm not making light of it. A few people died of lung infections um, from vapes and vaping, you know, And immediately Juul was like brought to task Sorry, their CEO, you know, eliminated flavored jewel pods and um, you know, it's ten, a few you know, like a, a few dozen, a dozen, a few dozen deaths and um and then you have something where, you know, it's like close to a hundred thousand deaths in the US alone and the alcohol industry is not held accountable. Very, very like distinct and obvious ways you can look at that, you know, and the alcohol industry uses the same tactics that the tobacco industry has. Um, And in the way that I look at this, if you you go back and you look at, you know, tobacco has been around, yes, for many, many years, it is it being consumed as a cigarette has not, um, that started in the 1800s. And also, it was, you know a very very small percentage of of tobacco consumption even in the early 1900s and it was just it proliferated it caught on it became you know and, and it caught on it it spread because of you know marketing spend because the consolidation of our of markets and power and also because of you know public relations moves and so we were influenced into using tobacco the way that we eventually used tobacco And when you look, and and today, just to put it in context, you know, it's about 8 million people, 7.7 million people die a year worldwide from tobacco related deaths. It's saturated though. It's, it's, it's gone global. Um, There's really no place where the tobacco industry doesn't touch. Um, It is way ahead of the alcohol industry. The alcohol industry did not consolidate until after prohibition. It is still consolidating. And it is just starting to go after markets in the same way the tobacco industry has been going after markets for a very long time. And when I say markets, I mean like low to middle income countries um, and then also women. Um, tobacco industry started targeting women in you know, the 1910s, 1920s. Um, and the alcohol industry, um, we're kind of like in the heyday of trying to increase in, uh, women's consumption. And so I say this because it follows the same pattern. I say it because it's like alcohol, you know, hit men first and then women followed suit. And then the levels of addiction and death in men started to plume. And then also the consumption started to actually downshift for men. um, And like the death always follows the increase in consumption. And then you'd later see women come on because they picked it up later. And then you'd see their death rates and their addiction rates come in after. And then they peak and then they try And so the height of cigarette consumption um, and at the height of cigarette consumption, about 45% of Americans smoked. And we think about smoking and we're like, everyone smokes, but 45% of American adults smoked. Um, When you think about drinking, uh, that's about 70%. 70% of American adults drink. Um, And so we have, I mean, like the way that I look at this is we have a drug. We have a drug that we are conditioned to consume when we, when we come of age, we're basically expected to consume it. That's the natural course of it. There is, you know, two thirds of us consume it. And then not only that, we're dying at faster rates than we ever have before from it. Um, from, right, increased marketing, from increased production, from, incre- you know, from, from lots of different pushes um, and pulls. And so the way I say it is just like it's one of these things like, For me, I always thought I had to make alcohol work. I never thought I had to make cigarettes work. I was shamed for smoking. I was, you know, like people just had no problem telling me I was disgusting for smoking. And I was rewarded for drinking because we had two very different relationships with both those substances by the time I was in my late 20s and early 30s. And so I, I think it's what I, what I mean by that is that I just think our attitudes, are, our attitudes change so quickly and can change so quickly. And you already see this. There was like the first year that there was dry January, there was like a few thousand Americans that were part of it. And I think last year was about four million. Attitudes do shift really quickly once we start to become aware of something. And so the way that I look at it is I just do not see how. Well, knowing what you we know, knowing how many people actually die from it and then also all the other ills related to it, you know, it's, it's tied up in all sorts of things like sexual violence and domestic abuse and car accidents. Um, and so like knowing kind of its collateral damage um, or what it's an accomplice to, you know, knowing, you know, how much profit is made off of it, knowing the death rates and the, you know, and also the rising consciousness. I just, I, I, you know, big pharma has been under it. Big tobacco has been under it. I just don't see one, our attitudes toward alcohol remaining the same. It's just, it is changing. And two, I don't see us knowing how we are (laughs) allowing it to go on for much longer without holding corporations accountable for death. I mean, they have absolutely no accountability to something that they sell. And they and you look at tactics, if you like, if you if you like start digging into some of the shit that's happening in like Africa, like or or India, where it's just I mean, it literally the way that it's forced on communities that have no history of of alcohol consumption, or some communities that have no history of it, it's just I mean, it's it's horrifying and it's profitable. Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting because like, just so much of that I didn't know or, you know, obviously hadn't spent time learning about. So it is really eye-opening to see that. And and so, you know, if, if people are listening to this and they're thinking like, oh, I don't know about the problem or maybe they think, oh, maybe I have a problem, but it's so normalized. Like how... How is one person to know whether it's it's a problem for them, like and whether they need to seek out support other than just trying to, you know, navigate this on their own?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's one of like I mean it's so weird because we've worked I mean, we have an online program. We're we're closer to, you know, we're not like a community a free community support. We're, we actually have a program that helps people that's closer to like an IOP or, or a, like outpatient or intensive outpatient. So I think it's so interesting because what we do is all digital and we have worked with people that are, you know, we've worked with people that kind of have been trying to quit for sometimes decades um, that are able to, and or people that you just immediately assume need to go to rehab. And some people do, you know, and I think it's to say like, it's just, it, you, I guess a couple of things I want to say to this is one, I was really, really sick, like very sick. And I ended up figuring it out on my own. Because again, there's really no good institution of recovery that exists. that's accessible. Um, and that was to me, the only choices that I thought I had. Um, I think like having this thread of we typically think like of addiction as incurable as something that hounds you for the rest of your life. And I think The main thing I do want to like kind of impart is that, I don't even know how to say this. I guess what I want to say is we have kind of this idea that only really, really sick people get really, really intensive treatment and people in the middle just kind of wait or try and change it. And so the way that I look at this is rather than looking at, oh, like you're, you know, you're, you're a, you know, a 7.5 on a scale of one to 10 alcoholic, I typically just talk, I ask people to ask themselves if it's serving them. And if it's not, you know, like that go from there, I think for most of us, we know, like, it's not like, I mean, alcohol is neither here, nor there to like my mom. And um, it's basically like that to my sister. And so it just doesn't register. And so I think like, for those of us that have an itch with it, the way, the way I like to look at it is just like, you know, does it take something from me? Does it cause me concern? Does it not feel right? And I think like we, that's where we move from. Like just that kind of like internal gut check of this does not feel right to me, or I want to change this, or I want to look at this. And I think from there, it's just, it's that awareness. You're not, the question that we've held up for so long is, am I an alcoholic? Okay, no, I'm not. So then I'm gonna keep drinking. I mean, that's just basically it. We carve people up into normal drinkers and into like really sick people that are allergic to alcohol instead of looking at a you know, a spectrum and there is a spectrum. And so I, you know, I, I look at it as something where it's just about awareness. And from that awareness, you know, people ask me all the time, where do you start? And I'm always like, Oh, here by asking this question? I don't know. Like here, like in the place where you just start to observe your relationship with something and then From there, bringing into, you know, for me, it was just a book and then it was therapy and then it was, you know, meditation. Like there was so many different things, but it started to basically, you know, I mean, like anything else, like you said at the beginning, your eyes get bigger and then or they grow wider and wider. Like you can't unsee and then you start to see more and also start to service yourself in that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like I think in the book you say, instead of asking, am I an alcoholic is ask, like, is this getting in the way of my life? Is that the question I use, which I think is really helpful. And you said that you, that we should stop using the words alcoholism and alcoholic. So I'd love you to talk about why that is and how that impacted your sobriety.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, I came into sobriety. I found a book, and it was a very different type of book. And it, it was it was essentially just saying there's no, just like a, somebody that quits cigarettes is a non-smoker. When you quit drinking, you're a non-drinker, you're not an alcoholic. And it changed this idea. It actually allowed me to look at my relationship with alcohol because, and I wasn't trying to qualify or not—I mean, not qualify. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. Uh, it ran through my family. It was the last thing I wanted to be. And so, not having to be an alcoholic was pretty freeing. And Also really confusing. People only take you seriously, and and, or at least I found this. People only took me seriously when I said I I had alcoholism. I tried to quit drinking, you know, not declaring my alcoholism, and it really confused people, and it left me out of treatment options. And so I did um, call myself an alcoholic for a while. I went to AA for a while. And then it just stole pieces of me. I don't know how to say it other than that. It just didn't feel right? And I was in a car with my mom and she was talking about her friend and from selling or something. And she said something about how his, like her friend had a grandson and he was addicted to drugs. And she goes, he's an like, can you believe it? He's, he's using again and he's putting them all through it. He's an addict and he's just should go to jail or something to that effect. And I was just like, Oh my God, mom, that's me. I'm like, you just put, you're talking about somebody like they're, a criminal and like they are the problem instead of somebody that's sick and I was just horrified by it and we had this long conversation and my mom had cancer and I was just like we never talked about my sickness we never talked about my healing it was something I did on my own it was something that my mom did with support and we stopped at a train station and I just was like and excuse me I'm, I'm can I cry a little? Um, I just said, I don't understand what the difference between you and I are. And I do not understand why yours qualifies you for sympathy and mine qualifies me for selfishness and, and, and unreliability. I don't understand why mine is something I did to myself and yours is something that was done to you. And I don't get these different things. And I don't see why you can talk about some, how you can see someone that is struggling with the same thing I had as a problem to be thrown out and well, you know, instead of a person to be saved. And I mean, that's like, I think <laughs> the genesis of it, which is just, I'm not an, I am not like that. Like I, I, and I don't believe that about anybody. And I think what we have allowed ourselves to do, because if you go back into the history of mental health treatment and addiction treatment, it's in, especially, or the history of the United States it's puritanical and, uh, and, and typically the side effects of addiction are bad behavior and bad decision making. And we like punish people or, or abnormality or not walk in the line, you know? And so we punish people for the moral implications of their sickness instead of reminding them that they're good and helping them heal from there. And I think that when you, you know, I have had to break my close ones of this. Stop calling people alcoholics. Stop calling people addicts. There's somebody that is, you know, either struggling with uh, alcohol use disorder. There's somebody that's struggling with an addiction or experiencing an addiction. But it's just, you know, like just don't. And people, I mean, I, I also at the same time, I mean, people are allowed to call themselves whatever the fuck they want. Like there's, this is not about. Hey, you shouldn't call yourself an alcoholic, you know, this is about like how we refer to sick people, um, and, and how we basically write them off as a label. I, people are explained to me as schizophrenic, so it's as if that says everything about them or addicts or alcoholics, as if that just solves everything. And now I understand exactly what I need to know about them. And I think that it is, I don't know. I mean, I could go on forever about it, but the crux of it is just that, those labels are synonymous with um, all sorts of things, um, and uh, typically they are not synonymous with, you know a worthy human being who is in pain and deserves to heal, and so yeah, that's
0: one reason. yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I like uh, you know, I, it's stigmatizing language, I think, yeah, deeply, what. yeah, 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 well, i really I appreciate you sharing that story. I really do.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I still remember what it was like. Just one of the clearest moments of. And I was probably like nine. I mean, it was Christmas. So it was probably like nine months. So I've been dealing with that shit for like, you know, 14 months at that point. And it was just, you know, everyone was like, there goes Holly again with her, you know. And it was just the way I was treated because what my sickness was labeled was so bizarre.
0: <laughs> it's so bizarre.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important for,
0: for people to hear and really think about and shift the way that we, you know, treat people and talk about people. And yeah, I could go on about that too and how it it relates to, you know, like homelessness and things. Anyways, uh, right. but I, I really want to talk to you about like recovery and the patriarchal nature of AA. So I hope you don't mind me shifting <laughs> gears into that because like, I really do cool. want to dig into that.
1: Yeah, super fun topic that hasn't, you know, I don't know, did you see the New York Times post?
0: Yes, I did. I did. Cool, so, cool, was, cool. I'm so glad. And I, yeah, and some people <laughs> like in the circles that I'm with, but like the, you know, anti-diet professional circles that I am in were circulating it. So I was happy to see it reaching reaching those people too. So yeah, can you talk about that? The patriarchal nature of Alcoholics Anonymous, like how that works against intersectional feminist ideals and can further hurt marginalized groups?
1: One of my favorite books is called At the Root of This Longing by Carol Lee Flinders. Um, had you heard of it outside of me writing about it in my book? No, no. I think this is one of the most important things. Before I get into that, because I think like one of the things that I have suffered from for the last few weeks is a belief that I think AA is just horrible. It needs to be, you know, stopped. And I don't believe that at all. I think, you know, like it is an incredible organization that many of my closest friends use consistently. Many people I know have gotten, you know, have used as part of their recovery path. And so I think like one of the things is conflating... What just like laying this straight to just talk about the way patriarchal institutions maintain their, you know, their sameness and their power hierarchy like is, you know, is through distraction. And just to be clear on this, just like I don't think the church just needs to be burned to the ground, you know, for us to be able to criticize and find a new way to exist within, you know, spirituality or religion or whatever. I. I feel the same way about AA. And so I want to mark, I want to be clear on that piece first, because I do have a lot of very feminist progressive friends that also like find, like are able to navigate AA and also have this awareness around it. And so coming back to this, I like Carolee Flinders' work because it's very simple. It says Carolee Flinders is a, she's a very smart, um, uh, I think she has her doctorate, Um, but she's a very smart woman as a professor of her she specialized in retelling the stories of women mystics and was also a feminist. I think she taught at Berkeley, like in the sixties and seventies. Um, she also lived on a co- like in a co-op with, um, Iswaran, um, who's like a spiritual teacher. And so she was this like meditator, and she was part of this. And I can't remember what like his lineage is, um, but I mean, like he's tra- he's translated a lot of Vedic texts. So I guess I can't remember. It doesn't even matter. But she lived within essentially like a like a, a, a monastic co op life under a spiritual teacher whose roots came from uh, whose roots were in India, and then also she was this like feminist, and she had a hard time reconciling what her spiritual path told her to do and what feminism told her to do. And she identified these four areas where spiritual lineages, because they were all created for men. Um, anything created in the last few thousand years was created for men. And you can, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm a huge, like I I absorb anything that is I, spiritual. Like I, I, I've, I've, I don't even know how many different books I've read and it's just so clearly like this common thread when you catch anything, you know, like, um, like Shanti Davis work talks about it's, it's all written to, to men and women are always the side thing. They're always the thing that you can't be in a room alone with or the thing that will take you down, you know? And so. All of these spiritual lineages were made for men and they were made to break down male privilege and into spiritual purity. And so they assume that the person coming into this has a a voice um, and then, you know, silence is the antidote to that. They assume this person has a highly developed sense of self and ownership of the world and power and that the antidote to that is basically you know, just burning the ego down. Um, they have a, you know, a sense that this person has been able to move about freely throughout the world and feel safe in the world. And the antidote to that is closing yourself off into, you know, like a a cave with a few people or, um, or an ashram or, you know, basically closing yourself off from the world. And then the fourth thing is they assume that this person has just been satisfying their direct pleasure um, and added to that is to refuse all pleasure. And so when it comes back to this, Carol Flinders just points this out, and she's not talking about AA, she's talking about Catholicism, she's talking about, you know, <laughs> uh, Buddhism, She's she's talking about everything. And she's essentially saying that all of these, because they were, they assume these privileges exist, um, that, that often what you're doing when you take somebody that does not, you know, like if you're looking at, let's just say like a woman, um, you know, and that's just one intersection of identity that's, that deals with oppression in our society. But let's just take women. Women are not allowed to use their voice and freers have been murdered for using their voices. Um, women are not allowed to move about in the world freely. I still am a, you know, I do I don't walk in certain places at night. I still don't have the right to move around in the world freely. I, you know, women do not have, they're not chasing their desires, you know? Like our desires are often like shown to us through the lens of what males want, what men want. Um, and, you know, we we don't have a sense of owning the world. Um, we just don't because we never have. And so to, you know, essentially assign these things to a woman is to ask her to renounce something she doesn't have. And it's more, it is not, it is not getting to spiritual purity. It's getting to, you know, it's basically making it's, it's going in the other direction. It's creating a sicker person. And so I think it's really important. Like, you know, AA came from a, a evangelical Christian organization and it was created for, you know, by two white straight, cis, um, hetero men, um, who, you know, were upper middle class. And so this isn't to say, Um, that no one can move through it without being hit over the head with, you know, like, (laughs) patriarchal uh, messaging. And there's a lot of people that, have, you know, can make it work. But it is to say that if you look at a book that was written in 1939 and hasn't, you know, changed since, I think the book was written, I think the 12 steps written in 39. And then the book was written in 37 or 35. I can't remember off the top of my head right now. But you look at something that's like 80 years old, and that hasn't changed. um, And you look at the language in it. And you also look at the practices. Those are things that and and I just know this also from so much personal experience working with people that feel, you know, that feel made sick, made they, they, they feel it makes them sicker. It is you know, it's it's kind of one of these things where I think the antidote is actually building people up and, and, and actually giving them some of these things so that they understand it. I still believe in relinquishing voice, relinquishing my... I still believe in the end result. But in order for me personally to get there, I had to first feel like I could, you know, um, use my voice. I had to essentially develop male privilege in some way or a sense of it before it actually didn't just feel like harmful. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. Like one of, one of the quotes I highlighted from your book was, women aren't sick from an overdeveloped sense of ego or a pathological lack of humility because we've all we've ever done is chase our desires. We're sick because we don't have these things and haven't done these things. And I feel like that is, yeah, like it's essentially... The practices, and you go into this in more detail, because for those of us that aren't familiar with AA and the principles, because I certainly wasn't really, aside from like what I've seen on just like popular television shows, it's, you know, you're, you're essentially saying that it's, it, it kind of pathologizes uh, like humility and things like that. And like, whereas like, we've never really, (laughs) like, we need to build up our power, not submit, I think is, is is the essence
1: yeah. of it. I think what healed, what, what, I, what heals us is, are is getting mad, you know, what heals us is being like, what the fuck is happening? Like, what heals us is feeling like we are, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of different things that I think like that, that are the that are the opposite, and it doesn't mean at the end that we all don't just kind of get there. I just like through the same, you know. I, I do believe in an end result. I was working with my therapist a couple of weeks ago, and I said something about humility didn't like didn't repulse me for the first time. I mean, I've always been attracted to the idea of humility, but like thinking about using that as a way to move through the world, um, I it wasn't at first about humility. It was about having the right to exist. It was not about being small and being meek. Um, it was about, you know, essentially feeling like I was worthy. Um, and and then I think that there is a space for us to start encountering some of these ideals that assume we've had this thing all along or practices that assume that we've had these things all along. I just think it's such a delicate balance of understanding that like a lot of this is made a lot of the, like these things were made for a very specific type of person and and that There's all sorts of different people that come into anything when it comes to like a spiritual practice or, you know, a religious tradition, and it's not all going to apply the same exact way.
0: Yeah, well, and we have to wrap things up because of time. But, um, you know, one of the things I just want to mention, and that is just, you know, in the book, and, and I'm assuming like, you know, in your in the sobriety school Tempest, like you go into like the six elements of feminine centric recovery, and So if people are wanting more, like the sort of like, how do I do this? Like, what's the approach you recommend? Like, that's all, it's all in the book. And well, you can tell people where they can find more of you now. (laughs) So where can people find more of you? And if they want to learn more and get, and get support.
1: Yeah. I mean, the book is a great place to start. I have a blog up called hipsobriety.com. It's my old blog. I'm no longer really adding to it, but it's a, it's got, I mean, I've been writing about this stuff for years. And so it's got a lot of really great resources, including what to do, how to start, um, I run a company called Tempest, and we have a program that helps individuals encounter and change their relationship with alcohol. We're really focused, though, on, on essentially helping you create a foundation for healing versus just abstinence-based, um, and it's for people who are just questioning all the way down to people who are wanting to get sober now or attempting to get sober to people that are you know, far into their recovery. Those are some places. We also have an incredible website called The Temper. Um, and that's just a it's – it's a multi-contributor publication online um, that has tons of resources. Um, so,
0: Yeah. And I'll link to all those in the show notes. And, um, yeah, like, I mean, my hope with this is that we get more – feminists on board with seeing the impact <laughs> this has and you know and and
1: too. yeah
0: yeah like and uh, like as you said in the book it's like why are we so mad at everything and not mad at this at what alcohol is doing to us and i think that that's what i want to leave people with but more like,
1: people are getting mad and that's yeah. the, that's how it starts it just starts by us looking at something and being right that doesn't make sense because you know it's hard it's hard to unplug from the matrix <laughs> yes
0: oh yeah oh the uh-huh. A hundred percent. And to your point earlier, like, I know you're very lucky to not have like feminist friends in diet culture, but oh my goodness, do we see it? Like in feminist groups and stuff, people still posting about their diets and all that.
1: Crap. Right. And so, it is still there too. We got work I to know, do. It's so funny. <laughs> and and the other thing with that too, is I work with a lot of people that have a history of, you know, they have co-occurring. And I think one of the things too, is just, and, and just as somebody too, that's, you know, like that's come out from underneath diet culture well i know i somebody that has been able to stop sticking her finger down her throat and like i think like this is one of the things that i found too is just there has to be just like with alcohol like there has to be a gentleness around this it's not like you've got to stop drinking this because it's bad and you're a bad feminist or whatever the fuck it's just allow it's about like helping people come to the right decisions and the right language that is gentle and compassionate and allows them to be deeply imperfect because like all of us are. And so when it comes to like the, the you know, like the, the diet stuff, I see so much of it. The second people stop drinking and they start like thinking, oh, shit, you know, and it's just like it's such a gentle coaxing of us to be here for other people as they kind of have that like uncovering of all of the ways that we're just stuck and caught in it. So anyway, I think, which is just to say, I, this is not about feeling bad for drinking.
0: No, no, no. I think it's just like so important to say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just another way that we cope with like this sense of unworthiness that we have that's based on the culture we live in. And so it's just another piece of that puzzle. So I commend you for the work you're doing and the bold book that you wrote and Hopefully others will pick it up and good luck with the rest of your folks. Thank you for her. having me on this. Thank you so much a good for conversation. your time. Thank you. Thank you. Rock on. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. You can find all the links mentioned at summerinandin.com forward slash 157. And uh, yeah, I just loved it. That conversation and loved reading the book and sort of seeing the parallels between like alcohol culture and and diet culture and how those play into our lives and how they strip us of our power and yeah just it really made me think about alcohol in a different way and i'm curious to know if you are thinking about it in a different way after listening to that or after reading the book just really really interesting stuff. And I and uh, yeah, I'm curious to to learn more about it. So that is it for this week. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanen. And I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Summer If you haven't yet, Go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on.